Good morning. Our scripture reading was Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jamie. We got some like electrical demons this morning. The crackling. Those of you who were here early, the fire alarm was beeping, and that's all right. Can't no electrons keep us down. Will you uh, pray with me this morning? Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. So now let your written word be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to understand and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. But teach us through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ. The glory of your holy name. Amen. Um, so I remember almost coming up on seven years ago when I first began serving here at Middle Street. And, you know, when you first start anything, you've got a lot of thoughts and ideas and goals and a, a long list of things you think you need to do. And one of my kind of uh, to-do list items was to meet as many people in town as I could. And I, I kind of made up a list of people I thought it would be wise to meet. Um, government leaders, you know, the mayor, the chief of police, school principals, uh, people, business people in town kind of prominent, just, you know, establish a presence, we're here. And, and I started, I, I got just a little bit of the way through that list, and it quickly became clear a couple things. One, uh, most people in town don't actually know that this church is here. Like, they literally don't know. And that's still true seven years later. Two, maybe more blunt, most people in town don't care that we're here. And even the people who I met with, they were very polite and they were happy to meet with the pastor, or maybe they were just too scared to say no to a pastor because you know, who, who knows what he might pray. Um, <laughs> they were very polite, but if we're being honest, it was very clear that they just weren't that interested. They just didn't care. They never reached out to me again. And at first I thought, that's, that's weird, and like, don't, don't they know who we are? <laughs> But quickly it dawned on me, of course. Of course. See, I've been operating under the mindset that we are, we're somehow supposed to be prominent and central, but it hit me. The same theme that we're reading from here in 1 Peter 2, that God doesn't call us as Christians to be absolutely central in a culture, but in fact we're more effective most of the time when we find ourselves on the margins and at the fringes of society and culture. We're picking up again after a few weeks off. We're going to spend the next three weeks continuing this series on the church. That's a very broad topic, I know. But in a post-pandemic world, now is the time. 
as things start changing again, to reevaluate what is it that God calls the church to be? How does he call us to be? And instead of trying to define the church and lay out a list of this, 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 and this, we're approaching it more like a prism. You know a prism? You look through a prism from different angles and you see different colors. The church is kind of like that. It's multifaceted. It's like this perfectly cut diamond. And as you look at it differently, different things jump out. As it turns out, the authors of the New Testament use a number of different pictures and images and metaphors to describe the church. So instead of saying, this is rigidly what we are called to be, we're looking at a lot of those different images and metaphors and exploring what does it mean to see ourselves as the church in light of this picture or that picture. Today we're really focusing on two words. Two words. Aliens and strangers. Do you notice that Peter says that, that he writes that? Dear friends, I urge you, and he's writing to Christians, as aliens and strangers in the world. What does it mean for a church to be a group of foreigners, of aliens, of strangers? Some translations use the word exiles. Think about political exiles right now that you might have heard about in the news recently from places like Syria. What does it mean for the church to be a community of exiles, of strangers, of foreigners? That's what we're asking this morning, because that's what Peter says one of the ways that he describes the church is. Now this, in some ways, this might be the most disorienting sermon for some of you. And I know, I know that, and I tread lightly. Uh, I'm not looking to, to upset anybody in this. But in fact, we have to come to grips with it. See, many of you, if you've been a Christian, especially if you've been a Christian for decades, like many, many decades, you remember an era when it was common for people to go to church. Remember that day, way back when? Remember when it was accepted? Remember when it was expected that people go to church? What happened to that? Remember when churches used to be respected as part of the fabric, the social fabric of a community? And those of you who remember that probably find yourselves shocked, and I don't think that's too strong a word, by the fact that the church has gone from central to culturally irrelevant in such a short span of time. And you probably find yourself wondering, what happened? Well, a lot of things happened. We don't know everything, and the point of this sermon isn't a sociology lecture. But we do know a few things. One, that sociologists of religion tell us that we used to be in, America used to be what's called a Christendom culture, and we have moved on from that. Christendom, broadly speaking, just means a culture where it's normal and accepted and expected that people identify as Christians. If you've been a Christian for many decades, again, think back to that day. Back when you probably could start a conversation by asking somebody, what church do you go to? I dare you to go downtown and ask a stranger that question. How far do you think you'll get now? The reality is the churches that survive and that thrive into the rest of the 21st century in a post-pandemic, post-Christendom culture are churches that will have undergone a significant posture shift. And one of those significant posture shifts will be the willingness and, in fact, the eagerness 
to serve the kingdom of God, not in the central halls of power, but on the margins and fringes and outskirts of culture. That's where we're going this morning. Sounds like fun, right? Now, I know that a lot of things I say will be difficult. And again, I'm not looking to shock or upset anyone. Here's the reality. Here's what's at stake. If we don't come to terms with this, I give us a generation before this church no longer exists. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. There is actually greater opportunity on the fringes than there is at the center. Because Jesus calls us explicitly to be at the fringes more than he calls us to be at the center. That's what Peter is getting at here in 1 Peter 2. And that's what we're going to explore. Not just the danger, but the opportunity. In fact, you might say we're going to do both. We're going to think about the danger of the center and the freedom at the fringes. Two points, really simple. The danger of the center and the freedom at the fringes. But let's start with the danger of the center. There's a lot of data that backs up what we seem to have perceived about churches declining and Christianity declining. Uh, there's a term that sociologists of religion use called mainline denominations. It's a group of five to seven, depending on how you count major denominations, Christian denominations of churches in America. Our denomination, the American Baptist Churches, is one of those mainline denominations. The Pew Research Group, which basically just does survey after survey after survey, they call Christians on the phone and figure out what's the landscape of religion in America, recently found this. Mainline Protestants have declined at a faster rate in recent history than any other major Christian group. Now let's get more granular. In the past 40 years, our denomination, the American Baptist Churches, have decreased by over 30%, while the U.S. population has increased by 50%. If you're a marketer, if you want to look at that in terms of market share, that's a 55% reduction in market share, so to speak. That's significant. From about the 1950s to the 1980s, our nation's culture was more of a Christendom culture. It was expected, it was normal to call yourself a Christian. In fact, Christians got more and more close to the center and became more and more influential. Remember the moral majority? Anybody remember the moral majority? The moral majority was maybe the height of Christendom culture. When Christians, when pastors enjoyed access to whatever halls of power they wanted, including the White House, that was the time when presidents were most ready and eager uh, to profess to be Christians, interestingly. And now the trend has reversed. Now it's interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, that trend was not entirely unexpected. Back in the early 1800s, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian, wrote this. He said, he said, as Christendom grows in influence, Christianity itself will decline. Now, he was writing to a Danish culture and audience where there's a state church. So they have a couple hundred years, at, uh, they're just a couple hundred years ahead of us in that. But he said, the closer we get to cultural centers, the more likely we are to grow far or distant from Christ. Why would that be? It's pretty simple. The closer you get to the cultural center, in order to grow closer to a cultural center, you have to look more like the culture around you. 
And the more you tend to look like the culture around you, the less likely you are to tend to look like Christ. In other words, in Christendom, in a Christendom culture, Christianity becomes indistinct. Everybody kind of assumes that they're a Christian, but nobody can define what a Christian is. And the meaning of a Christian becomes more cultural, more about your culture than about your beliefs and your practices. And if it's indistinct and if nobody can define it, then why bother anyway? Peter, on the other hand, says this, that our faith is not about being in the center, but it's about looking distinct, different from the world around us. We are strangers and aliens, foreigners and exiles. He says, as a Christian, you should expect to look strange and weird to the world around you. We should expect that. We should expect not to be in the center of the stage, but at the wings, behind the curtain at best. Not in the halls of power, but somewhere in the back corridors of the musty basements. And that's exactly how it's meant to be. Because there's greater freedom on the fringes. Think about what it means to be a stranger or an alien. And Luciana hinted at this. Think about what it means to be a stranger or an alien. We don't mean space aliens, obviously, political aliens, right? People who are not from where they live. Just means you're not from here. You ever been a stranger somewhere? Doesn't have to be a different country. You ever gone to a party where you didn't know anybody? How did that feel? You ever moved across the country? to a different culture? You ever been an outsider somewhere, a foreigner someone? You ever been somewhere where you don't understand the language they're speaking, maybe literally, maybe metaphorically? Or a place where nobody understood what you were saying? A couple uh, years ago, a lot of years ago now, Jamie and I went on a vacation. We had this awesome vacation planned. Uh, we, We spent a week in Sicily, and it was beautiful. And we made it one of our goals as we were planning this trip that we want to go somewhere that's a little off the beaten path, that's not too touristy. We want the authentic experience. Let me just tell you, the authentic experience makes for a miserable vacation. (laughs) Because we found such an authentic experience that hardly anybody in the town we went to spoke English. We, at one point, we got locked out of the the, um, apartment that we had rented for the week. And it was midnight because our flight had gotten in late and we called some random phone number and it wasn't the person's uh, number. It was kind of the wrong number, but they knew the person and they didn't speak English and it took us probably 45 minutes at midnight just to get into our little apartment. And it took me about 15 minutes to try to order just half a pound of prosciutto from the little market because I said a quarter kilo and he thought I was saying four kilos and I don't want four kilos of prosciutto. It is exhausting. We, we were not well-rested after that vacation, were we? It's funny to look back on, but in the time, it was so hard because we couldn't understand anything that was going on and nobody could understand us. Nobody wants to be a stranger or an alien. Nobody wants it. So why does Peter make such a point to say this is how it is? Well, first, let's think about how strange it is what we believe. 
Think about how strange the Christian faith is. God became human. There's no other religion that teaches anything like that. Love your enemies. You've been on Facebook lately? That's strange, isn't it? If you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. That's foreign. That's not just foreign to a localized culture. That's foreign to human nature. None of us wants to die to ourself. None of us wants to give up our preferences. None of us wants to give up really much of anything. How about the last one? This is the most significant. God died. Every other religion, or even if it's not a religion, but just a worldview or a belief system or a guiding set of principles, says you die for your God. Whether that's an actual religion or whether that's just like you're consumed with the pursuit of success or being seen as successful, you'll give up anything else. You'll, you'll let everything else in your life die, so to speak, so that the right person, so that so-and-so sees you as successful. If you worship at the altar of physical comfort, you will sacrifice everything else to make sure that you don't feel any pain or discomfort. See, every other God, whether it's a big G God or a little G God, essentially says, you must die for me. You must give up everything else in order to find me or serve me. But our faith is a little different. Ours is the only faith where God says, I will die for you. That's strange. That's weird. God doesn't die. We all know that, right? Why does Peter call us strangers and aliens? Well, first, because what we believe is strange. It is utterly alien. It is utterly foreign to every single human sensibility that we have which helps us to see that, that we can't actually follow Jesus if we're not willing to be strange. If we're not willing to be exiles in one sense or another. If we're not willing to be countercultural in some way. We talked about some of our beliefs. Think more specifically about just some of what Jesus teaches. Go back to this one. Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Not just ignore your enemies and don't fire right back at them. You know, you ignore a bully and then, then it'll stop. Not ignore your enemies. Not tolerate your enemies. Love your enemy. Who does that? Think about the Christian notion of generosity. Jesus says whoever is willing to, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Who's willing to lose their life? I mean, if typically in the world, when someone thinks about generosity at all, the question they're asking is, well, what should I give? But the Christian question is not how much should I give, it's how much can I give. In other words, it's not about what's the bare minimum. It's about how much can I possibly 
give? How much can I possibly serve? How much can I possibly sacrifice? Ours is not a faith of the bare minimum. It's a faith of radical generosity. That's weird. I've heard it said um, by some people, they're like, I'm not opposed to being generous just as long as we make sure we're taken care of first. But how does that square with what Jesus says to Peter? He says, you're Peter, and on this rock, I, this is Jesus talking, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates, listen to this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If Jesus has guaranteed that the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then why are we so worried about trying to preserve the church? See, the world teaches self-preservation. Jesus teaches self-sacrifice. That's weird. That's legitimate, not just like a little bit quirky. That is off the charts weird to a culture around us. Whoever would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But everyone who loses his life for my sake will surely save it. One more. This is going to hit a little bit closer to home. I've heard it said by some people, even here, that the church is a business. Let me just say very gently but very clearly, no, we're not. No, we're not. We're the church. Businesses exist to make a profit, to sustain themselves, to survive. The church exists so that men and women who are far from God can find life in Jesus Christ. It's categorically different. That's not to say that business is bad. In fact, at its best, business can be very, very good. But remember, our position is not one of self-preservation, but of self-sacrifice. There's, um, <laughs> I heard this story just, just a, a couple of months ago. Somebody I know, know you know, a friend of a friend, uh, he knows a pastor of a church in Portland, Maine. And it's a, a small immigrant church, or was a small immigrant church, uh, mostly African refugees. The pastor, I think, is uh, from Ghana. I'm not 100% sure on that. He's somewhere from that area in Africa. That church over the years has grown so much that they've had to start several new churches because they've just run out of space. Instead of building a bigger building or whatever, they just said, great. Y'all who live on this side of town, new church. You who live on that side of town, new church. And this person told me he's a denominational leader. He said, I asked him, like, how'd you do it? How did you fund it? How'd you raise the money? What's your strategic plan? And the, you know what the pastor said? We pray. <laughs> we pray. That's strange. But you know what? Which way is north? Like that way. They're growing. They've started several new churches over the past several years. Remember earlier I mentioned mainline Christian, mainline denominations are declining faster than any other major Christian group in America. You know where the church is booming? Globally, the church is booming in South America, in Africa, and in Southeast Asia. You know that? 
In fact, you know this, this baffles me. I just heard this about six months ago. By the best estimates we have, the one country in the world where the church is growing faster than any other country is, you ready for this? Iran. Iran. Certainly not America, not China, not any northern or western country, Iran. And it's just exploding there. The Iranian church is, is just, we don't, we don't understand it. What's going on? Can you imagine that the Christian faith looks a little bit strange in a place like Iran? A little bit foreign? A little bit alien? By the way, in the, in the United States, as, as the big, powerful, central, mainline denominations are hemorrhaging, you know which American churches are booming? Non-white, non-English speaking churches. There's a group in Boston that tracks churches and they've just started to realize this, that they realize that by their data, Christianity wasn't supposed to be growing in or around Boston. And yet they were seeing more and more Christians. They didn't know how to make sense of this until they realized that all of these non-white, non-English speaking immigrant churches in and around Boston that don't report to all of these statistics and surveys and things like that in the first place are booming. Why is that? They're on the fringes. The world around us doesn't need more of the world. They don't need more of the status quo. They don't need more division. They don't need more political tension. The world needs more Jesus, plain and simple. And Jesus himself is deeply countercultural. Not just what he taught, not just what he did, but who he is. He had no beauty, the prophet Isaiah said. No, how countercultural is that? No beauty. He had no beauty that the world should look upon him. He was despised, spat upon, rejected. And have you ever noticed this? When you're reading your Bible, like when you're reading your Bible in the mornings or whenever, pay attention to this. Have you ever noticed? Jesus doesn't once go to a central place of power looking for followers. He doesn't look for followers among religious leaders. Jesus doesn't look for followers among political leaders. He doesn't look for followers among cultural or business leaders. You know where Jesus looks for followers? Blue-collar fishermen. Jesus went to brothels looking for followers. Jesus found tax collectors, just the most despised Jews you could think of, to be his followers. Not in the center, but at the fringes. And of course, Jesus' act of salvation the one reason that we as Christians have any hope in this world at all, the crucifixion and resurrection happened where? Not in the center of Jerusalem, the most powerful city in the Israelite nation, but outside the city walls. Not with a flourish, not with victory and trumpets blaring, but with a whimper. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus didn't come on a white horse, but on a donkey. Not with an army behind him, but with 11 men who, let's be honest, if we were to see them on the street, we would probably walk to the other side. That's what God uses <laughs> to build his kingdom. And at two and a half billion strong, the church is the largest, the Christian faith is the largest 
religion in the world. Why? Because Jesus himself came not to the halls of power, but to the fringes. Because our Savior found victory in death. Could it be that instead of looking more and more like the world around us, we need to look less like the world around us? Not just as individual Christians, that's true, but even as a church. Could it be that instead of looking very normal to outsiders, we need to look more strange, more forgiving? That's strange. More merciful? That's strange. More kind, especially to our enemies? That's strange. More gentle, more generous, more willing to admit when we're wrong? That would be something. More sacrificial. The world doesn't need more of the world. The world needs more Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, in some ways this is uh, much easier to preach than to practice. Probably, <laughs> probably in every way this is easier to preach than to practice. And I even think of areas in my life where I'm, I'm afraid of something that looks different or weird. I'm afraid of being different or weird. And I doubt I'm the only one. Lord, would you mold us and shape us? We can't do this on our own. In fact, it's, it's going to take, it's gonna take a, a Holy Spirit bomb in our lives to conform us into the image of Christ, to make us willing and eager to, to be the people that you've called us to be. Because there's resistance and there are obstacles and there's tension. Lord, help us to see the beauty of Jesus. Would that help us to, to consider the obstacles as nothing? but to press on at all costs, to love you, to know that we are loved by you, to look like you, to serve you, so that a dying world might know that there is life, eternal and beautiful and joy-filled life in following Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.